Good morning. Am I on? Hopefully I am. Anyway, I hope that you've had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, some of us have been isolated. Some of you have been with family. But whatever your experience, we know that God is sitting on his throne, as John said earlier, and that uh, we are just privileged as believers to uh, have him in our lives. Uh, it's been a very unique year. We all are quite well aware of that. And sometimes it's hard to think about this being a year filled with things to be thankful for, but that's just not the case. Uh, it is a year, as is every year, that we're with the Lord to be excited about what he's doing in our lives. Well, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we've just kind of been making our way through this uh, epistle, through this letter that Paul has been writing to the believers at Corinth. And uh, Pastor Wade last week kicked off chapter 10, and I'm going to mop it up starting in verse 23. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then we're going to jump to chapter 11 and just do the first part there. Uh, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what we have here is Paul giving some very specific instructions on how to deal, uh, once again, with idolatry. And if you've been following along, you know that this idea of dealing with idolatry is a major theme of this epistle. Paul has been dealing with it since the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, and he continues to get deeper and deeper in how to deal with the particulars for the believer who is living in a city that has rampant idolatry in it. Everywhere you look, there are many statues and there's idol temples and there's places for people to give credit to a piece of wood, a carving of stone, uh, something that is going to interfere with the believer's ability to be in communion with the God that created this world because their neighbors, their friends, their family perhaps, is a celebration of and worship of false idols. And Paul's trying to give his people a word of wisdom. Now, I've shared with most of us here my testimony from time to time. Um, but just in case you haven't been here the last few times I've preached, 
you know that I became a believer in high school. My brother, my younger brother, uh, came home from summer camp so excited about something that he had heard about being in relationship with God. And we had been somewhat estranged as brothers. Uh, just didn't have the same interests, didn't have the same likes. Um, not to go into a long story, but just say that I had done enough things uh, that made Dean not really like me too much. But yet that night, he told me the story of the gospel. And he talked about Jesus being my friend forever. And that he had learned to forgive me because Christ had forgiven him. And he offered to me the opportunity to accept Jesus as my Savior right then and there. And I did. I, uh, we knelt by our living room couch, and we had a quick prayer. And when I arose, I knew that something had changed. And in fact, I would never be the same again. Now, fast forward a little bit. Weeks, months, and my brother, as great as he is, and as helpful as he was to understand the gospel, neither one of us had been raised in church. We did not know what it really meant to be a believer. We were in the dark, but God is so gracious. He brought into our lives a young man who was well-versed in scripture. Uh, he was probably one of our best friends. His name was Murray. And Murray, without asking us, without warning, decided that what he would do is disciple us. Now, he didn't come in and say, hey guys, how would you like to be discipled? I'm not even sure that word was bantered about too much in those days. But that's exactly what he did. He came into our house, and I can remember it clear as day, and my brother and I, as usual, were sitting after school, eating junk food in our living room, watching TV. You remember the days, those of you who are old enough, where there were only three channels, ABC, CBS, NBC, and uh, we were probably watching cartoons or the Brady Bunch or something really, you know, great. And uh, Murray walks in the door, and he just walks over without warning, and he turned off the TV set. And he says, guys, there's better things for Christians to do than to watch TV. And I remember my response. I was angry. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? You know, I like TV. I, I'm not apologetic for it. What else is there to do? Tell me. And that's exactly what Murray began to do. And from that point on, Murray just invested himself primarily in my life. My brother was with us a lot of the time, but he ended up having a couple other guys who took that role in his life. But we kind of, Murray and I, followed around and did things together. And throughout modeling life for me as how a Christian should live, he began to slowly instruct me on how a Christian should live. How our relationship with Christ, how the gospel not only saves us, from eternal death, but that for now, it should change our heart attitudes, our lives, our focus, our vision, our purpose, and we should never go back to the way things had been before Christ. I'm so grateful for this relationship. Uh, sometimes it was frustrating. I'm sure it was frustrating for him. Uh, I could be quite thick, stubborn, uh, resistant, 
to whatever he was teaching me, but little by little, I began to get it. It became something that was permanently part of my life. And the day came when Murray had to leave. He graduated from high school. He was gonna to go to school at John Brown University in Arkansas. And that was, for all practical purposes, going to end the availability of that discipling relationship. So was it over? Many of you are isolated right now for health reasons, for precautionary reasons. Uh, the old life you've known, <clears throat> as far as being around people, has uh, been on hold for a matter of almost a year now because of COVID. Because um, the question we should be asking ourselves is, who are you discipling right now? Who are you in that kind of relationship with? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be discipling somebody. Or you should be being discipled yourself. Who's discipling you? Uh, either you're ready to disciple others, or you should be getting ready by being discipled yourself. And you say, well, how can I do that? That's almost impossible because we can't be around people. So similar to what we find in 1 Corinthians. You see, the Apostle Paul was separated from his people as well. Not because of COVID or some kind of uh, pestilence. Um, he was separated because he had other missions to do. And he was currently far away in a different country. And yet his heartbeat was for his people. Oh man, he, he can only remember what it was like when these baby believers in Corinth began to turn their lives over to Christ. And Paul was amongst them. And not only did he have the privilege of seeing them ask Jesus into their life and put away their old lifestyle, but they actually had enough believers that they could form a church. Paul was probably their first pastor. And as was Paul's pattern in relationships, he put other mature believers, well-established, the men that used to come along with him, that he himself was discipling, and install them as pastors. And I'm sure this is the pattern in Corinth. But now Paul was separated, and yet word was coming to him. These people that he loved, that he had sacrificed for, these people that meant so much to him were floundering. Their faith was weakening. It was being assailed by false doctrine, by people that were trying to take leadership away from Paul and those men that he had put in charge. They were beginning to go down some wrong paths, and Paul could do nothing from his position. Or could he? You see, Paul had one avenue, and that was he was going to write a letter. Paul decided, I'm going to take some parchment. I'm going to scratch out uh, a letter that's going to address these issues. He wrapped it, I'm sure, up as a scroll, he put his seal on it, and he sent it with one of his trusted people. He did this all the time to the believers that were in Rome, to the believers that were in Thessalonica, to the believers at Ephesus, to the believers at Galatia. The church at Corinth was just one of many places that Paul sent these letters. This was a method of discipleship, and we can't miss that. And you say, well, that's not really what these verses are talking about, but yes, they are. Paul is seeking to disciple 
these people. He wants them to become more Christ-like. He wants them not to be the victims of people that would abuse their situation, their ignorance in Christ, for their own purposes. So Paul had to do something. And he wrote a letter. And you think, wow, I take this whole book of 1 Corinthians and he wrote all of this in a scroll? Yeah, he did. And this isn't the only one, as we know. We have another book called 2 Corinthians, where he did the same thing. The church of Corinth needed repeated letters, repeated guidance on how to live out their faith in a practical way. My friend Murray, as I said, goes away. He goes to Arkansas. We're separated between Nebraska and Arkansas. Uh, Yes, we had telephones in those days. We had telegraphs. There were a lot of ways that we could communicate, not like today where we have email and text and all the other uh, various means, but what we did have, and that was super simple to use, was letters. And so my friend Murray would write a letter. And the rule was, as often as one of us received a letter, we would turn around and write a letter back. So after a time, I had a whole box full of letters for the man that was mentoring me. And typically, there would be several elements within this. So like the letters started in 1976, right? And we began to write back and forth. And because he knew me so well, because he had been discipling me in person, he was able to address issues. He could pick out things that I was writing back to him as things that needed correcting and changed. Just like Paul was writing and putting it in a scroll and mailing it off, Murray was writing a letter and putting a stamp on an envelope and sending it to me. So even though we live in a time of COVID, that's no excuse to stop discipling. Letter writing of any fashion, whether you're using the old-fashioned spam and you're putting the stamp on it, or if you're using email or text, that is an excellent way to disciple someone. If you can't be there in person, don't let that stop you. Keep it going. I became so enamored with Christ because of the ministry of this man in my life. I was so excited about who Jesus was because he was excited about who Jesus was. He opened the door into his heart. We talked about all kinds of things. What to do with lustful thoughts. How do I deal with anger? How should I treat others who I think should be more mature in Christ because of their time in Christ, but they weren't? Correct doctrine versus false doctrine and so forth and so forth. We touched on everything. It got to the point where I began to feel like I was ready to graduate. I'd been through this training. I remember going to summer camp the summer before my senior year in high school, and I was so excited to be there. But this year was going to be different. Instead of looking forward to playing football, volleyball, doing all the goofy things kids do at camp, I just wanted to do one thing. I wanted to take my Bible and I wanted to go up behind the cabins, up the hill, into a glade of trees, and all I wanted to do was open the Word and sit there and read it and be it. And here's the thing. For me, when I read the Word of God, even though this is so instructive, even though it has so many good things in it and practical things on how to live the Christian life, things that caused me to worship and to, and to pray, Really, what I felt was that when I opened this word 
and I had this chance to be alone, that Jesus himself came and sat with me, right? I could feel his presence. It's just like he was physically there, but in fact, he was spiritually there. And it was just so moving, and I began to grow in Christ. My senior year in high school, I used my senior study hall to just read from Genesis through Revelation. All of this is coming back to the fact that I was instructed to do this. This is how I was discipled. Paul is writing to these people, hoping that they're going to understand that they need to grow in Christ. And so that's all Paul is doing, is he's discipling the believers at Corinth. Again, I cannot emphasize enough to you. You're either discipling someone, because you're mature enough in Christ to do that, or you should be being discipled. What's getting in the way of that for you this morning? What's getting in the way of your everyday life, of handling that? Uh, Some of us are so lonely. We feel like there's things that are an impediment to that very relationship. But I'm telling you, this pandemic cannot be the reason why we're not doing this. We can write letters, we can email, we can be involved in people's lives, and it's very significant if we can do that. And you're saying, well, I just don't know anybody who wants to be discipled. And I'm telling you, there is no end of people who need to be discipled. Murray never came to me and said, Dave, I'll tell you what I got here. I got a discipling contract. And I want you to understand this is going to be our relationship. I'm the discipler, you're the disciplee. Please sign this. It's not going to cost you anything, you know, like a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. No, that's not what he said. I'm not even sure that he knew the proper terminology. It's just that he saw a need, and he took the, the opportunity, he had the boldness to insert himself into our lives and begin that process. Now, since that time, with Murray, I've had other people put themselves in my lives, my life, to do that very thing. My pastor, he preached, and I took advantage of Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, opening up the Word of God, listening to him explain, to expound, to exegete the Word of God so I could learn. I had a youth group leader who, for a time, got to live in my basement because uh, he was in between apartments and the things that he shared with us and talked to us about. I had another youth group leader and his wife who were so instrumental in our life, Bill and Nancy. Uh, Over and over again, different people poured into our lives. How can we not turn around and do the same for others? They don't have to be young, chronologically. They just have to be people who need a mature believer to set them. And what is the benefit for the one who's doing the discipling? Paul, if he could tell us that today, and he will sometime, uh, he would tell you, this is amazing. I grew as much as I'm writing the Corinthians and I'm kind of correcting them. I grew because of the privilege I had of discipling someone else. Anytime that I've been in a relationship of discipling with another believer, I find that I learn things. I grow I have to keep myself sharpened spiritually because that person needs me, needs what I have to communicate. It's either that or watch a lot of TV, right? And Christians have better things to do with their lives than to just sit and watch TV. 
We have people's lives to invest in. We have things that we can do to invest in them. Be creative. Get out of the house, whether that's physically or just in the spirit by writing letters, calling on the phone, communicating. People need us. My guess is, in the days to come, in this country, we are going to need to bolster God's church. People are going to be challenged in their faith. How much we need people who will come alongside and lead them into the truths of the Word of God. All right, so that's my soapbox for discipleship this morning. Let's look specifically, beginning at verse 23 of this passage. So what exactly is Paul telling you? He's saying this. He's addressing idolatry, and he's addressing a specific situation, which Wade kind of touched on last week, in which he is saying, hey, I I know that a a thing that many of the believers are tripping over right now that is kind of hurting their faith is knowing how to navigate the Christian faith living amongst a pagan people that are deep into idolatry, literal idolatry. And I want to give you some guidelines. And he says, first of all, I want you to understand that no matter what an idolater thinks about a place, an event, a food that you eat, and so forth, that doesn't make it evil. Paul says all things are lawful. God created everything, right? But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. He says that a second time, meaning that God has sanctioned everything. He has sanctified it. He owns this universe. He owns this world. He owns your life. And therefore, you don't have to play hopscotch around things trying to find that which is sanctified versus those things which are corrupted. Because in God, they're all his. And he says, but let's just use some wisdom. All right? You understand that. I get it as believers, but not everybody around us understands what's going on. And so therefore, he, he puts a little containment on it. He says, these things are lawful, but they're not always helpful. These things are lawful, but not all things build up. They don't all edify us. Some things actually tear down. And then he says this caveat, which is the theme to this paragraph, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is a statement of verbal action. This is a statement of love. The Christian should always be energized and activated to understanding that whatever I do, no matter what freedom I feel in Christ to do it, it should be in the context of demonstrating love to my neighbor. I have to love my neighbor. So therefore, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question. So if you somehow get a piece of meat and it had been offered one time to the temple of some foreign god, pagan god, well, go ahead and eat it. It's, there's nothing wrong with it, inherently speaking, at its, in its essence. It's not marked as food that you cannot eat. It's just food. Because of their ignorance, because of their perverse beliefs, you're going to limit yourself? Well, not just for that reason. And then he goes to a quote from Psalm 24. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's Paul's ultimate argument here. Nothing that a pagan does to any part of life makes it that way in its essence. 
This is a recurring theme of Paul in Romans 14. We see it in the example of the sheet being lowered in Peter's vision in which God instructs him to eat of unclean animals, saying, listen, I have made everything. This is all mine. And as a believer, your mind needs to change. Whereas once you were at one time very aware of and subservient to those things of idol worship, now you are free. I don't want you to consider that anymore. There is a big difference here. Like Paul just had said, be out of love, let's seek to please our neighbor, not just ourselves. So while you may have the freedom to understand that this meat is pure, that this food, even though it's been offered to an idol, uh, because idols aren't real, they just are literally rock, wood, whatever, an image, they, they can't eat the meat. They can't eat the food. Therefore, what do we care what has been offered to them? However, Paul's going to go on and say this. If somebody who's not a believer, verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you over for dinner and you have a desire to do this, eat whatever is set before you without raising questions. Uh, on the grounds of conscience. Four times in this section, Paul mentions conscience. It's a, it's a slippery word in Greek translation. Uh, it, it basically means the ability to tell right from wrong. It's an internal mechanism by which some people would make ethical decisions. And Paul says, uh, go ahead and eat of it, whatever's set before you, but don't necessarily question the host as to what this is, where it came from. That's not incumbent upon a believer to do the genealogy of your dinner, right? You don't have to ask, where did this hamburger come from? Where did this piece of pork come from? And did it at one time belong in a temple? He says, don't do that. On the ground of conscience, just don't do that. But, but, contrastive conjunction. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Paul is clearly thinking that there are going to be times, maybe, when their neighbor, who's an unbeliever, will test them by offering them food and then saying, by the way, this has already been offered to an idol. Maybe with the idea of saying, come with me. Come and join me at this feast. We're going to together honor a god by eating this feast in that god's name. Uh, there are examples in Roman history of people getting food served to them where the food is brought out with chanting of certain gods and saying, this food is offered to this god. And everybody would raise their, their, their cup and they would drink to that god, not really believing in the truthfulness of that theology, but just out of practice, just out of normalcy. That's what's considered maybe good form when you're invited to someone's house. And Paul is saying, do not do anything by which you're going to be interpreted as having agreed with, condoned this kind of idol worship. It's one thing to eat meat that is offered to the idols, that has been purchased at a lower price because it's already served time, more or less, as an offering to one of these fake gods. But it's quite another thing to be invited to someone's house who is specifically seeking to trip you up 
either by getting you to agree with them that there is such thing as a pagan god, or to compromise your faith in the one God that you say is above all gods, and that is Jesus Christ. And he says, if you're going to do this and you come to your house and someone says to you, let's eat this in the, for the sake of the idol, then I would say to you, don't eat, right? For the sake of conscience. Don't condone that. Don't go along with that practice. If someone wants to make a point of presenting you and pointing you to their particular household god by eating this food, then don't do it. It's not what we're supposed to be about. We don't want to do anything that is going to hurt the reputation of the church, of the Christian, or Jesus Christ himself. And Paul says down in verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his, the unbeliever's. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? I partake with thankfulness, and so forth. And so then he says in verse 31, as a conclusive statement, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Jews, those who had not yet converted to Christ, but yet still follow dietary practices of the Old Testament. Greeks, uh, these are the pagans. These are the barbarians. These are the ones who do not have knowledge of Jesus Christ yet. Or the church of God. Just think about what you're doing. Paul is discipling them. He's giving them particular instructions for ethical issues that came up in their day. Questions that these young believers had and maybe had been led astray by someone else. And he says, verse 33, uh, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Again, a verbal love statement. Do this practice. Be careful what you do. Feel free to eat anything, because God has made everything. However, do not get lured into the trap of coming to someone's house, an unbeliever's house for dinner, and having them suck you into some kind of practice in which they are worshiping their God by observing certain pagan practices. Don't do that. Don't give them any opportunity to say that you kind of came along with that, that maybe you're ready to give up on this Jesus and come in and start worshiping all gods with them. Paul says, don't do that. Don't give offense. But, he said, just do your best to seek the needs, the pleasures of others, if you can. And then he ends with that unfortunate uh, chapter division there in chapter 11. He jumps into that last statement. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, there it is. The ultimate disciple statement, right? That's why it's worth time to think about discipleship this morning. Paul is saying, imitate me. Wow. What a statement. My wife and I have been talking about this this week. Do we feel comfortable telling others, imitate me, imitate Dave, imitate Ion, you know, the Doug Fern, imitate Doug Fern, imitate whoever it is. Who's discipling you? Are they discipling you in a way that you can be an imitator? Well, I don't think Paul is saying, I'm perfect. 
Far from that. We know from other passages of Scripture he describes himself in the reality of his sinful condition. But Paul is saying, as far as this attitude is concerned, as far as showing love for my neighbor, doing nothing to please myself, but doing everything to please those around me, be an imitator of me. And why? Because I'm an imitator of Jesus Christ. That's where I get my instruction. That's who discipled me. And that's so very true. Remember on the call of Paul on the road to Damascus? He's hit with a blinding light, and he hears that voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul is blinded, and he goes off into the wilderness, and there he is discipled by a couple different people, right? A man and a woman are sent by God to instruct this great apostle on the basics of Christianity. But he recognizes in the so doing of that discipleship, he is actually being discipled by Jesus Christ. He has the confidence to say, imitate me, because I'm imitating Christ in this situation. Doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we're sinless, doesn't mean we have all the answers or that our act is just great. It just means we know more than that person that we're discipling. We have proven obedience in some area of our life where we can be instructive to someone else. Be imitators of me. Who, who's imitating you today? Who do you feel comfortable saying to them, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ? It's an intimidating position to be in. But I can tell you this, there's people watching all the time. I, I don't know about you, I came from a family where most people had never made a profession for Christ incredibly kind, even very ethical, uh, good people, but still being in a relationship, and that means with Christ, they, they were just watching us. They were watching my brother and I at first, and then later my mom gave her life to Christ, and they wanted to see how we lived our life, whether it was worth imitating. So whether you ever enter into a real discipleship relationship, understand this, you're discipling others even in your silence even when you don't say anything, because they're watching to see how you handle everyday situations as a believer, as a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus Christ. How are you doing? What are you doing? And Paul just says this, don't please yourself, please your neighbor, which is something that Christ is said to have done in Romans chapter 15. But he's also saying, just imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to focus this morning because people sometimes say, well, let's look at this passage and let's just see if we can find anything in our contemporary society in which we are dealing with idols. How do I know when I'm in one of these positions and I need to live and have discernment like Paul did, you know? And so quite often when you read commentaries, people will be talking about, well, you know, it's like drinking, it's like smoking, it's like uh, taking drugs, it's like how you use your money, you know, and you go to all these things that can be idols in your life, but really it's, it seems like somewhat of a contrivance, somewhat artificial, because we really don't have graven images. We don't have in our society uh, pictures and carved stones, we don't have edifices for the most part, um, giving tribute to a pagan god. 
And at most meals, at least that I've been to, even in the midst of unbelievers, no one is lifting a glass to Zeus or to uh, Hera or to any of the other Olympiads, right? However, we still form idols. Uh, Iona and I, when we're discipling people, we have the opportunity to teach from time to time, like to use peacemaker's definition of an idol. And an idol happens in all of our lives. We may not live like they did in the first century, but still we have to be aware, right? How do we form an idol? I kind of talked about this in an earlier sermon, but I just want to bring that home again. Having an idol means that you have a desire, uh, something that needs to be fulfilled that God can't do himself. I, I want this so bad that I'm willing to make this the chief goal of my life. Something that I feel like I can't be, it can't be addressed in my Christian walk. Um, maybe because it's not of God, but maybe because we're just taking it to that extreme. And as uh, Iona and I have been talking about it this week, we both identified things in our lives that have been a problem. You know, my wife would say, well, having a clean house, something as simple as that, it's a good thing. But it can be taken to an extreme where that desire, soon, secondly, if the first step is you have a desire, that's how you create an idol. We see that in kids' hearts. They have a desire for something that God doesn't fulfill in their life. They have to have it. That soon will morph into a demand. And your idol becomes a demanding thing. Uh, for me, it was you know, more and more knowledge. I want, you know, if you've ever been in my office, it looks like someone dumped a dump truck full of books into my office. They're just everywhere. If you go to my house, it's the same thing. I just consumed books, but not always to the glory of God, sometimes to the promotion of David. That's the creation of an idol. And that demand becomes this, that when we have that desire and we're moving for it and we're sacrificing things for it, we demand that others come and worship at our idol. So if my wife is wanting the house clean, she can make it very uncomfortable for our daughters. I want the house clean in my way to the extent that I would do it. And really, when you ask yourself why, that really is the revelation that it is an idol. Why do I need this done this way in this time? And it's because you really, you see your, your situation, in this case, the house cleaning, as reflecting who you are. Well, I'm the person who has the cleanest house. Well, I'm the person that has studied more knowledge than anyone else, and I've read so many books, and boy, aren't I worthy, aren't I somebody to be admired? And we've created this idol, and we demand that others follow it. So first we desire, second we demand, third, we judge. We judge those who aren't willing to understand our idolatry. We judge those who aren't worshiping with us at the false image that we've created in our life. And it can be anything, you know? Some of us, it's money. Some of us, it's education. Some of us, it's our family. Oh, man, I, I love my grandkids. I love my kids. I'm going to lift them up, and they become everything to me. Some of us, is as silly as a golf game. Um, I've, I've heard of idols being created out of the smallest things, but we begin to judge those who don't see the same value in our idol that we see. That's the third step. We're judging them. Uh, 
In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 41, it's a very instructive statement, and so much so that I would like to read it to you this morning, if I could. It's that it doesn't just affect us, but we pass this on to those that we love, and they don't have any choice but to follow along with us. And it says this about idol worship in verse 41 of 2 Kings 17. So the nations feared the Lord, but they also served their carved images, their idols. Their children did likewise, and their children's children. As their fathers did, so do they to this day. See, that's the insidiousness of idol worship. When we create idols, we have a desire, we make it a demand, and then we start judging others. Those who love us, our family primarily, have no, no choice but to imitate us. What is an idol for me may very easily become the same idol for my kids and my grandkids. It has that generational aspect to it. We love it. It's a good thing in some ways, and because we haven't really examined it, we don't understand that we're pushing God further and further out of the box of our life so that we make room for this new object of our affection, this new idol that we've created. What's your idol this morning? What is it that you push God out of the box of your heart for? Where are you worshiping? Lastly, after we desire and we demand and we judge, finally we punish. We punish those who don't agree with us. We punish those who are not walking in step with us with our idol worship. Well, if you don't want to keep my house that clean, I don't really want you in my life. Uh, I've seen this, uh, not necessarily with my wife, but I've seen this with other people. Their houses are like museums. They're pristine, and you're not welcome there. They don't want you soiling the carpet. They don't want you touching any artifacts. Uh, you feel like the plastic it should be on the couch, you know, and so that you can't really leave an imprint of your visit there. Uh, in my case, with my idolatry, God, he brought me up short on that. You know, I think I've explained to you in the past that my retinon, my one good eye blew, and I can't read like I used to read anymore. And God used that as an opportunity to demonstrate to me that I had an idol in this area, that people were more important than knowledge. You say, well, that's a silly thing, but it was so necessary for me to focus on. What would happen if I can't be the person that I was pushing myself to be? What would happen with you if you can't be that person that you're trying to be, is everything given to God in worship? Or do you reserve that small thing that soon becomes your idol? Because you say it ends up in punishment. We separate ourselves from others who don't agree with us. We, we gossip and we laugh at those who don't see the value of this token image. We don't want that in our lives. And as Paul is being a discipler here with the Corinthians, so we need to be discipled. We need to learn how to walk this difficult life so that we rid ourselves of anything that gets in the way of our heart's affection and obedience to our Lord and Savior. It says several times in the book of Corinthians, Paul's letter, you have been bought with a price. There is nothing that can get in the way of that relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
And if you find yourself struggling with something that you think is as important, and sometimes that can even be the things of God, people who live at a church but never take it to their neighborhood, people who are so into the things of God, so they think that they don't leave any room for the love of others who don't know him. But whatever it is, examine your heart this morning and be willing to be in that discipling relationship. Be discipled and then put yourself in a position to disciple others. God wants to use you for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your love and your grace. You are so holy. Lord, we want to be used by you to make a difference in other people's lives. Uh, I think of the fact that Murray went on and gave his life to serving you. He's been a missionary for 30-some years, setting a great example for those of us who are following him. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to be similarly an example for those that I wish to disciple. But whatever the case, Father, wherever we find ourselves, may you give us the confidence to believe that there's someone out there who could use our wisdom, that could use our example, as long as it's submitted to you and in obedience to you. Father, may we be disciplers and makers of people who are going to turn this world uh, on its ear for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.